Our reading this morning to verses 1 to 6. If you don't have a Bible, there's some available at the table at the back. Um, just go and help yourself. And if you need a Bible, feel free to take it home with you. Um, while you turn to the passage, you um, need to be reminded that when we read the Bible, um, we are reading the living word of God. God reveals himself primarily through scripture, and so the Bible shapes and guides everything that we do as God's people. So let's hear the word speak to us this morning from Revelation 3 or 2. Sorry, it's 3. Sorry, it's written twice different ways. Sorry. Um, from Revelation 3, verses 1 to 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you st have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Claire. Uh, if, you, if you are new with us, um, just so you know, we've been working our way through uh, this series, Seven Letters to Seven Churches from the Book of Revelation. Um, generally, what we do here at Village is we'll just take chunks of the Bible and work our way through books of the Bible, sections of books of the Bible, and just work our way through. Um, because as Claire said, that's what we believe. We believe that the, the Bible is God's living word. It's how he speaks to us, and we need to hear from him. Um, this morning we get to the church in Sardis, which is kind of the, the, the next city along the postal route. If you remember, um, these letters went in order of the postal route, if you like. So they, they kind of went in a circle around the region. Um, it's, it's not an easy message. It's, not, it's, not a, it's a heavy message for the, that Jesus has with his church in Sardis. Um, but even in that, we know that all of God's Word is living, right? It, it, it brings life. All of God's Word is good for us, so even the bits that, that make us squirm and make us feel uncomfortable, we know that's a good thing. And He's the, he's the great physician, and He doesn't just give us the, the diagnosis of the disease, He also gives us the cure, right? Um, and so that's what we're going to see that He does for this church in Sardis this morning. So I'm going to pray and ask for God's help, and then we'll get stuck into this passage. Father, um, help us to understand Your Word to us this morning. Give us listening ears. Um, Lord, there's so many things that would distract us and so many other, other voices that would speak in and try and distort your word and try and distort what you would say to us. Um, Lord, our, our feelings come and go, uh, trends come and go, but your word is eternal and it never comes and goes. Um, it's always the same, yesterday, today, and forever. And, and Lord, we need to hear that this morning. So, so help us and, and help me to speak clearly and, and speak your words of truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, as I've been preparing this throughout the week, uh, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is reputation, right? Um, that's one of the words, one of the main kind of themes of this, this letter that Jesus has to the church and stars. They have a, re a good reputation. 
Um, but we do, we do think a lot about what people think of us, right? I think that's one of the things that, especially for a lot of us are in that, a lot of, I was going to say me, a lot of us are in that kind of 20s and 30s age bracket. And I think in that time of your life, we do spend a lot of time thinking about what other people think of us. Maybe when you're older too, I don't know, we'll have to wait and see. Um, but if you even look at like Facebook and Instagram and, and Twitter and all these things, like they're all geared towards getting other people to like you, right? So we, we want more likes on our posts or we want, uh, we want more people to notice what we're putting up there. We want to look a certain way. Um, and we spend all this time thinking about what other people think of us. But somebody, a, a wise person uh, once said to me, uh, don't worry so much about what people think about you because they're spending all their time thinking about themselves anyway which is kind of true, right? So we, we spend all this time thinking about what other people think of us, but in reality, they're probably just thinking about themselves. Um, but even though we try and kid ourselves that it's not really important, we all want to be well thought of, don't we? Like no one, no one wants to have a bad reputation. Uh, maybe you want uh, a reputation for being a hard worker, right? That's a, I think in, in our culture, that's a, that's a good that's a good that's a good, good reputation to have as being a hard worker. Maybe we want a reputation for, for, for being generous and kind. Um, or maybe you want a reputation for not caring what people think about you, which is kind of ironic because that's what reputation is. It's what people think of you. Uh, even businesses. Businesses want a good reputation, right? Um, Elizabeth Arden, who, who is uh, this kind of designer brand or whatever, uh, she said, Rep- repetition makes reputation and reputation makes customers. Reputation makes customers. And it's true, right? So if, if, like, if, you're going, if you're going, so we were on holidays last week and we're in Paris and we were going to go to a restaurant. I'm, I'm, I'm on, uh, uh, what's it called? I can't think of the name of it. TripAdvisor. Oh, that's a good restaurant. But if it has like two stars, I'm not going to go there. Or if you're buying something on Amazon, I'm not going to buy that if it had bad, bad reviews. Businesses want a good reputation because reputation can be a powerful thing. Reputation can even decide if somebody likes you or not before they've even met you, right? If, if they've heard all the stuff about you from other people, they might decide, I don't really like that person before they even meet you. Well, the church in Sardis had a, had a reputation. They had a good reputation, right? They were a happening church. They had loads of people. They had plenty of money. They had all, all their services were really well attended. Um, they, they didn't really offend anyone. The whole city of Sardis really liked them. They were like, oh, you're a part of that church. Those are good guys. And you can imagine the scene, right? Uh, probably in a room like this or something similar. Um, the, the, the church in Sardis is gathered on a Sunday. Um, and they're settling down to start their worship service when the pastor gets up and he says, guys, we've got a letter. We've got a letter from the Apostle John. And everyone gets a bit excited. We've got this letter from the Apostle John. That's great. We can't wait to hear what he has to say to us. And the pastor begins to read, John to the seven churches in Asia, that are in Asia. That's us. He's writing to us. And the pastor goes on, write what you see and send it to the seven churches. That's us. We're one of the seven churches. And as the, the room gets more and more excited and the murmur starts to get louder and louder and louder because it turns out this letter isn't just from John. This letter's from Jesus. This letter's from the Lord Jesus himself. And as a pastor reads out the letter, they hear what Jesus has to say to the four previous churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, and then they get to them. And maybe they had some nerves. They were like, oh, I've heard what Jesus said to these churches, but... You know, as he reads on, their nerves start to disappear because 
Well, we're, we're Sardis. We're the church in Sardis. We are, I mean, look how many people we have. We, we, we have a really good reputation. Everyone likes us. Jesus is only going to have good things to say to us. Like, I mean, our Instagram is on point, you know? Like, our whole, do you see how many people are at our carol service? You seen our website? Look how well thought of we are. And what a shock they were in for when the pastor read verse 1 of Revelation chapter 3. I know your works, Jesus says. You have the reputation for being alive, but you are dead. See, the church in Sardis had this good reputation, but turns out that's all they had. Ephesus was the loveless church. Smyrna was the faithful church. Pergamon was the compromising church. Thyatira was the, the tolerant church. And now we see here in Sardis, Sardis was the dying church. And they very quickly learned that the only reputation that really matters is our reputation before God. It doesn't matter if everyone else thinks that you're a great person. It doesn't matter if people think really highly of you. All that matters is what God thinks of you. There's only one opinion that matters, and that's God's opinion. And as we've seen working our way through these seven letters, uh, each of these letters takes on the same structure. There's an introduction where Jesus introduces himself in a particular way that makes sense to what that church is going through. And then he gives us this this all-knowing evaluation. Jesus evaluates them and he either gives them criticism or or, or commendation or sometimes both. And then he gives them an exhortation, a a call to do something. And then finally he gives this conclusion. At the end of each letter, Jesus finishes with an offer of eternal blessing to those who overcome. But this word keeps coming up. Uh, to the one who conquers, it's literally to overcome. It's, it's Nike. It's where we get the word Nike from, victory. Overcome whatever trial or temptation that, that, that Jesus has shown them in the letter, and you will receive this promise. And it's the same for the church in Sardis. So let's start with Jesus' introduction. Uh, Sardis was, uh, it was, it was an important city in ancient times, right? It was the capital of a province called Lydia. Um, it, was a, it was about 30 miles south of Thyatira, the previous church. So the postman's now come, come south. Um, and it was one of the oldest cities in the region. Um, it, was, it was, by this stage, it was, it was over 1,000 years old, over 1,200 years old. Um, but it was kind of living on past glories, it was virtually destroyed. The whole city was virtually destroyed by an earthquake in AD 17. Uh, and, and the emperor, the Roman emperor at the time, had the city rebuilt. Okay? But one of the things, ironically, that it was famous for, it had a huge necropolis. And a necropolis literally means city of the dead. Okay? So it was this huge graveyard. I think, Tim, do we have a picture of it? Yeah, that's it. So that's part of it. Uh, you can still go and see this today. Um, so they would build these tombs, and it was literally like a city for the dead. And they would celebrate, uh, th- this is one of the things that they were celebrated for, they were celebrated for, for, for death. And you could see, apparently you could see these graves as far away as seven miles away, you could see this, this necropolis. But what's interesting is, the church was a reflection like this. The church in Sardis was, was, reflected the city in the same way. It was a, it was a graveyard. The, the church was a church of the dead. It looked impressive on the outside, but it was like how Jesus describes the Pharisees in, in Matthew 23. He calls them whitewashed tombs, right? So they, 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 they look nice on the outside, but inside it's just death and rot and decay and bones. And on top of this, Sardis, uh, Sardis uh, boasted in her defenses. It was a really well-defended city. It was built on top of these cliffs. And, and, and because of that, uh, Sardis thought that it could never be conquered. 
because you're built on cliffs. But ironically, they became so arrogant in their uh, defenses that they were, they were conquered twice because they didn't put guards on the cliffs and so they didn't see the attacks coming. And this is reflected in the church too. Jesus tells them to wake up, you're falling asleep, you don't have, you're not on guard anymore. They'd let their guard down, just like their city, they had let their guard down and it had led to their downfall. And it's to this church in this city that Jesus introduces himself in this way in verse 1. He says, To the angel uh, of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Okay, so if you're new to this series, if you're new with us this morning, this might be a bit confusing. Let me explain. In each of these letters, uh, Jesus introduces himself in a particular way that's relevant to the church that he's addressing. Okay? Um, and in each, of the, in each of his introductions, references back to this introduction that John gives to Jesus, well, that Jesus gives to John in Revelation chapter 1. And here it's no difference. He reveals himself to be the one who, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, right? Now, the seven spirits of God, that, this, isn't, this isn't a way of saying there's seven holy spirits. This is a reference to, it's the imagery of, of Revelation saying that the Holy Spirit is full, it's complete. Seven in, in the Bible is, is, this, is this number of fullness and, and completion. It's why, it's why God finished his creation work and rested on the seventh day. And it's a, it's a statement that reflects the perfect work of the Holy Spirit, his fullness. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying that he comes with the power of the Holy Spirit to speak into this church in Sardis. And if you think about it, it's the Holy Spirit they need, isn't it? This is what they need. This is why he, it's this kind of appropriate introduction. He says, I'm coming with the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit who breathes life into dry bones. And you are a pile of dry bones. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings life. It's the Holy Spirit that, that, that makes us as Christians spiritually alive. And Jesus comes with the Holy Spirit to bring life into this dying church. But not only that, Jesus also has the stars. The angels, right? So if we go back to chapter 1, and we saw this in our first week, that the, the stars uh, are a picture of the angel of the church, and, and that's this representation, a representative of the church. So w- whether it's some kind of supernatural actual angel that represents each church, or whether it's a, a figurative way of saying a representative of, of the church, we, we, we don't know. I tend to think it is an actual angel because of the way that word is used throughout the rest of the revel- revelation. I think it is an actual angel. But the point is that Jesus has them. Jesus has the church. It's his way of saying that the church is his. So they might think then all their good work, well, they've built this big building, and they've got all this money, they've got all these people. This is our church. But the church belongs to Jesus. And, 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 and make no mistake about this, this church, in all the good things, in all the flaws, this church is Jesus' church. It belongs to Jesus. And he has us too. And so by introducing himself in these ways, by saying that he has the Holy Spirit and by saying that he has the church, it's kind of like, it's almost, you can imagine him saying, I have the Holy Spirit and I have the church and now I'm going to bring my hands together and make this church come to life again. Because what you need is the work of the Holy Spirit to bring life into your dying church. You see, it's through the the life-giving work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus has given his life to the church. The church is made alive when the Holy Spirit is present. Um, just recently, as our wedding, I was chatting to a guy that I hadn't seen in years, a friend of mine, and uh, uh, I was asking him about uh, uh, the church he goes to, um, and uh, I was just like, well, how are things going? And, and 
he got pretty upset and he said things weren't going really well at all. And he teared up and he looked at me and he said, it feels like the Holy Spirit has left. And that hit me like a punch in the gut. Not, not, not just because there's people in that church that I love, but, but because in that moment I realized the threat is real. The threat is real. Like the danger is real. That could happen to us. If we're not careful, like the, the, the Holy Spirit could leave. If we start to rely too much on ourselves and, and not enough on him. And church, we need, we need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. We need his life-given power. We need him to continually make us alive. We need to pray that he never leaves us. Or worse, that we drive him away by thinking that we can, we can do this on our own. We can just get by on our own efforts. That's why we meet to pray. We pray for the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us. Jesus says the Holy Spirit is the one that leads us into all truth, and that's what we need. He's our comforter. He's our guide, he, and we need him. Uh, some of you will be aware of John Stott, who's uh, an old, uh, well, he's in heaven now, but uh, old uh, pastor and, and theologian and writer, and he says this. He says, we must pray in the Spirit, preach in the Spirit, worship in the Spirit, live in the Spirit, and walk in the Spirit. A steel church can be refreshed by him, a sleepy church awakened by him, a weak church strengthened by him, and a dead church made alive by him. So this is how we don't become like the church in Sardis. Now, I know that you're probably thinking, well, that seems like, it seems impossible, doesn't it? Because we're this new church and, um, you, you know, there's kind of a bit of excitement about it and we're still growing and people are coming and, it's, and we're meeting new people all the time and, and all that kind of stuff. But the truth is that we can fall asleep. We can fall asleep like Sardis. We can start to worry too much about how the building looks or start to worry too much about the songs that we sing or the way that we dress or all those kinds of things and all of a sudden we're asleep. All of a sudden we're a dead church. And this is how we guard ourselves against falling asleep. And everything we do, we just depend on the Holy Spirit to bring us to life. I want to be really clear about this. And guys, this is something that just last night... Jesus was challenging me about. This church is not our church. It's not our church. Okay, it's obviously it's fine for us to say our church. Do you want to come to my church? That's fine. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, but, but, but actually this church belongs entirely to Jesus. It's his church. Jesus planted this church. He sustains this church. He grows this church. He owns this church. And, and, and we said this in the very first Sunday, and we've always said this in Village, that, that, that we have nothing to offer you except Jesus. And Jesus comes with power of the Holy Spirit to keep us alive. And, and, and my prayer desperately is that we never forget this, that, that our church is continually dependent on Jesus and allowing the Holy Spirit through Jesus to make us alive. Um, so this is how Jesus introduced himself to this church, this brief introduction. And then in the second half of verse 1, he gives his evaluation of this church. It's all known evaluation. He says at the end of verse 1, he says, I know your works. Full stop. I know your works. Sometimes that's a good thing and sometimes it's a bad thing. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, that's a pretty short evaluation. It's pretty short and to the point. Jesus normally says in all the other letters, I know your works and da da da. I know your works, but da da da. But here he just says, I know your works. It's as if Jesus is saying, I know your works, and I've got, there's none to speak about, there's nothing to say. You don't have any works. All you have is a reputation. You're empty. 
Uh, the, the, the Greek word for, for reputation that Jesus used here literally means name, right? You're, you're Christian and name only. This is what they were known by. They were known as the church that was alive. They were known as the church that was vibrant. And Jesus says, that counts for nothing. Because I'm not there. The Holy Spirit's not there. If this church was in, in, in our times, it would be, they would have the biggest crowds. They would have the coolest building. They would have like, the best social media. Like, their pastors would be speaking at all the conferences. You know, you know that kind of thing? They would have like, you know, the, the coolest worship band and, and all that kind of stuff. But Jesus, he has these eyes like flames of fire. Like in, in, in chapter one, we see that. Eyes like flames of fire, this penetrating gaze. And he sees through all that. This is the only church that, that so far that, that Jesus has nothing positive to say about it. No commendation, only criticism. They have a reputation. They look good, but, but we know looks can be deceiving, right? Like, um, when my sister uh, was dying uh, with leukemia, one of the things that hit me a lot was like how well she looked. We were talking about this the other day. Like, there's times you're like, you look, you look fine. You look like there's nothing wrong with you. On the outside, she looked healthy, but on the inside, like cancer was, 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 was eating her away. And it's the same for this church. You see, a church can look totally healthy on the outside, but be dying on the inside. A church can have reputation but lack reality. That's it. You can have a reputation but lack reality. And I really don't want us to be that church. I, 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 you have no idea. If I knew that's where we were going to be in two years, I'd just lock the door now and give up. Uh, we, were in, we were in Paris last week. And one of my favorite buildings is there, the Sacré-Cœur. And it's this, uh, which means the Sacred Heart. It's, it's this big cathedral on top of a hill. Uh, it's just this be- like, beautiful building, like, and it looks over the whole city. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, it, it's, it's inspiring. It's hundreds of years old. It's impressive, and it's easy to look at something like that and be impressed by it and go, wow, look at that amazing church. But maybe inside there's not much life. Maybe there's not much community. Maybe there's not much Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus doesn't judge things the way we do. And I'm not, and I'm, not, I'm, not getting at, I'm not getting at, I'm not getting at cathedrals or buildings. I mean, a church like that could be full of the Holy Spirit. It applies to us too. Like, a, I mean, think about us, like informal, come as you are. Lots of activity, lots of friendship, lots of hanging out, lots of laughter. Like, it's hard to get our service started because everyone wants to chat and hang out. It's hard to get home afterwards because everyone's hanging out. And that's great. I love that. But let me tell you, it's possible to be like that and still be dead. Jesus doesn't judge churches the way we do. And when he evaluates Sardis, he sees through the activities and the programs and the reputation and the money, and he sees that they're dead. They had this reputation without reality. By the way, there's nothing wrong with having a good reputation. In fact, we kind of want to have a good reputation one of the things that Paul says in, 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 when he writes to Timothy, when he's, when he's talking about uh, the things that qualify uh, elders, is that they're to be well thought of by outsiders, right? And so, you know, we should have a good reputation. We should be good neighbors. We should be known as a church that people can go to when, when they're in trouble. There's nothing wrong with a good reputation, but reputation means nothing without inward reality, like it's a bad state of affairs if, if everyone around us thinks we're amazing, but Jesus thinks we're dead, right? Or even worse, if we think we're alive, but Jesus thinks we're dead. 
So what had happened? What, was, what had caused this church to die? We know it wasn't always this way because later on Jesus tells them uh, to remember what they had received. They obviously had a good past. They were still they were living off these past glories. They had obviously been a healthy church t- to get to the point where they, they had money and people and, and a good reputation. I think there's three things that we can see in this passage, three marks of a dying church, if you want. Three, I guess, warning signs for us to be aware of. Firstly, they were arrogant. There was arrogance there. They had fallen asleep. They were like, oh, we got this made. Like, we're falling asleep. They had a good reputation, uh, but, but like the city that they lived in, they were living off past glories. And it's so easy for us to do this as Christians, isn't it? I think these, by the way, I think these three marks of a dying church are, are not just applicable to churches, but to individuals. And it's so easy for us as Christians to live off past glories, isn't it? Right? You used to be passionate for Christ. You used to serve. You used to share the gospel with your friends and neighbors. You used to have that, you used to have that zeal that the Bible says. Like, you know, you know uh, I, I, but you don't have that anymore, and you're just living off past glories. Like, in France, whenever uh, Monica goes on the date with the guy from her high school, that coolest guy in high school, and then she realizes that he's still trying to be the coolest guy in high school, even though he's like 30 years old. It's like that. We can be like that. And it's like, what about now? You talk a lot about what your life used to be like, how, what Jesus did for you back in there, or, 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 or how you, you used to have this passion for Jesus, but what about now? What happens when we get arrogant is that we stop being desperate for Jesus and we, we think we've made it so we, we stop pursuing him and this can happen to churches and this is why we want to in village, we want to just keep pursuing Jesus and relying on him and saying, Jesus, don't lead us anywhere that you, that you don't want us to go. Don't let your spirit uh, depart from us. Secondly, um, there was spiritual lethargy here. They had fallen asleep. There was, no, there was no hunger. Now, I'm no doctor, but I know that loss of appetite is a sign that something's wrong, okay? I know I'm sick if, if I go off my food. That's it. I'm like, oh, I must be sick. I'm not hungry. <laughs> and, and I assume, right, Chad can confirm to deny this, but like, probably if someone's getting healthy again, it's a good sign when their appetite returns. Are you, are you eating? Have you eaten? Have you drunk anything today? That's a good thing. You see, healthy Christians are hungry Christians, hungry for the word of God, hungry to have more of Jesus, hungry to be in community with God's people. That's what healthy spirituality looks like. So, so what's your appetite like? That's what I want to know. What are, you, what, are you hungry for Jesus? Do you want more of him? Do you want to be with God's people? Do you, do you want to understand his word more? Um, I, can't remember who, I can't remember who said this, but in my work, or in my study for this sermon, uh, I, someone said, Sardis may have been the first church in history to be filled with nominal Christians. Do you know what nominal Christians means? It's just, it's Christian in name only. Christian in name only. And Northern Ireland is full of nominal Christianity, isn't it? Like just the other day, I was chatting about someone that I know who goes to church twice every Sunday, not a Christian. But can't miss it. Don't know why. Christian in name only. You can, you can go to church every Sunday. You can be involved in all the prayer meetings. You can say the right things, but, but miss the point. You don't have any relationship with Jesus. Jesus wants relationship with us. He doesn't want religion. 
thirdly then, the third mark of a dying church, and I think it applies to us as individuals too, is like there was a lack of mission, right? So what stands out to me in this, in this letter is that compared to all the other letters we've seen so far is that, that there was no opposition. Jesus, you look at Ephesus and Smyrna, all these churches, they're, they're facing opposition. But, 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 but Sardis, he doesn't say anything about that. Their enemy isn't like in, 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 uh, in Pergamum. They're, they're, they're in the place where the throne of Satan is. In Smyrna, people are dying because of their faith. In Ephesus, they're opposed. But here, they're their own enemy. They weren't being opposed because they weren't doing or saying anything that would offend anyone. I, I mean, I was saying to Tim at the pub the other night, like, I love the fact that wherever Paul went, there was a riot. <laughs> Everyone, not that he was going to start in riots, but, but he brought the gospel and he lived in such a way and said such a thing that people literally started riots because of it. I'm not saying, Bel- I mean, Belfast has had enough riots, let's be honest, but, but, but I'm saying maybe we need a wee fire under us. Do you know what I'm saying? This church had blended into the culture so much that, that they had become just like the culture. They weren't taking a stand, so they faced no opposition. The church just become inwardly focused, and an inwardly focused is a dying, an inwardly focused church is a dying church. And the fact that they had a good reputation and weren't facing any opposition tells me that they weren't living missional lives, because everywhere in the Bible tells us that, in the New Testament tells us that anyone that's living on mission, you're going to face opposition. So here's the thing: if we don't live on mission, we cease to exist. If this church isn't on mission, we cease to exist because the church, I've said this before and I'm going to keep saying this, the church doesn't have a mission, the mission has a church. The church doesn't have a mission, God's mission has the church. And if you're a Christian, then you're a missionary. The church should be outwardly focused. We should live to to show and share the gospel of Jesus. This is why we planted Village South. This is why we support uh, Rachel Hannah doing her work with Wycliffe. This is why we support church planters in Turkey. This is why we want to plant more churches. This is why we're part of Acts 29, because we want to be outwardly focused. Because the church doesn't have a mission. The mission has a church. So let me, let me challenge us quickly this morning, uh, as if you haven't been challenged enough. <laughs> Don't worry, God gives the diagnosis, but he also brings the cure. Um, are, are, do you find yourself living off past glories? Is your, is your spiritual life based on, on, on what you used to be or, or what you used to have? Are you asleep? Does the, does the good news of Jesus fill you with awe? When we're singing these words about how Jesus, his love like a flood... He came to sleep beneath the stars that he had made. Does that fill you with awe? Or does it just make you switch off? Are you on mission? Or are we, or are we inwardly focused? Do we really want to be alive in Jesus? Or do we, or do we want uh, only a name and, and a good reputation? Because at the end of the day, and, and trust me, I feel that so keenly a lot of the time, at the end of the day, Jesus is the, is the only one that we're going to have to give an account to. They're tough questions, I know, and I know it's been a tough 15 minutes there. Um, but thankfully, Jesus doesn't stop there. He, he gives this um, exhortation. This, an exhortation just means a, a call to do something. It's like a urge. It's like, it's like calling you, a general calling his troops to go over the top. It's, it's that kind of thing. And this is what he says in verses 2 to 4. 
well, we've only done the first verse. <laughs> Don't worry, the rest is a lot quicker. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Yet you, still, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The good news for Sardis is that there is hope. Jesus, this is a dead church, but, but Jesus specializes in raising the dead, doesn't he? That's, that's why we're here. This is the gospel. Uh, this is what Ephesians, Ephesians 2 says. You were dead in trespasses and sin, but God. Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ and seated us in the heavenly realms. You were dead, and you've been made alive. He, he does that for us, and he's about to do it for Sardis, and he can do it for any church. By the way, if you're a Christian, this is the reality that is yours. You were dead, and now you're alive. And you're seated in the heavenly realms with Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, that's the reality you can have. That can be yours, just trusting in Jesus. That, that, that you can be made to life. You can be brought to life. Jesus specializes in resurrection from the dead, and so it's, it shouldn't, shouldn't come as any surprise that, that he gives Sardis, this dying church, a plan to be raised back to life. He gives them five instructions, um, and I think they're just as applicable as warnings and reminders and instructions for our church. Um, he tells them to wake up, to strengthen what remains, to remember what they had received, to keep it, and to repent. Number one, to wake up. There's hope. It's time to wake up, right? You've been asleep for too long, Sardis. You need to wake up to the fact that, that you're at war. Wake up to the fact that you have an enemy. Not, not the people around us like many Christians seem to think, right, by the way they interact with other people. But, but, the, but the, the unseen enemy, the, 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 the devil is on the prowl. He wants us to feel. You need to wake up to that reality. Wake up to the fact that, that the return of Jesus is real and he's coming soon. And Jesus calls them to wake up while there's still time. He, like I said, he's trying to light a fire under them. I wonder, do we need a fire lit under us? I, I know I do. Most of the time, I, I walk around like Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead. <laughs> That's how my life looks. Um, I have a friend who's he's not a Christian. He said to me once that um, the thing that puts him off Christianity the most are Christians who say this is the most important thing in the world, but don't act like it. Not true. We, we say this is the most important thing, but yet do our lives really reflect that? Are we asleep? Jesus says, wake up. You, you can come to, to gatherings like this or, or engage in missional community whenever it suits you, but, but Christian, uh, Christian, Christianity is not just a label. It's a reality. Please hear me in the most loving way possible. Uh, and as someone who has had a spanking, uh, Jesus is calling us to wake up. What are you doing? Wake up. Coming to church doesn't make you a follower of Jesus any more than what in match of the day makes you a footballer. Or insert your own analogy there. Jesus is calling us to wake up. And, and, and listen, Jesus rebukes us gently, and it's an invitation to life. He's saying, man, if you wake up, you're going to discover all of this, and later on we'll see the promises. Number two, strengthen what remains. 
You see, there were these few in Sardis, we see in verse 4, who were still alive. They hadn't fallen asleep like most of the church. They were a faithful few, and Jesus calls them to strengthen and encourage the weaker brothers and sisters, not to despise them. He, he doesn't tell these stronger Christians, guys, that church is a train wreck. Get out and, and go to, why don't you go to Pergamum or Ephesus or one of these other churches? You need to get out. He doesn't tell them. That's not how church works. He tells them to, to encourage and to, to strengthen what remains. We build each other up in church, don't we? When one of us fails, we build each other up. When one of us can't really walk, well, then we could, the rest of us carry them. This is why we have missional community and core groups. This is to strengthen and encourage each other. And if you know that your sister or brother is struggling, don't gossip about them. Don't give them a hard time. Encourage them. Get alongside of her and a reminder of how much Jesus loves her. And if you're struggling right now and you're hearing this and you're saying, that's me, I'm asleep, I know, then get alongside someone that's alive and pray with them and ask them to carry you if that's what you need. Jesus says, strengthen and remain. Number three, he says, remember what you have received and heard. What is this? This is the very thing that made them a church in the first place. He's talking about the gospel. This is what they'd received. The church in Sardis was planted because they had heard and believed the gospel of Jesus. Right? The antidote for the dying church is to remember the gospel that had made them alive in the first place. And sometimes we think that the gospel is just for people who aren't saved. But, but here's the thing. The gospel is not only what makes us alive, the gospel is what keeps us alive. The gospel is not only what makes us alive, the gospel is what keeps us alive. And if we aren't continually reminding ourselves and reminding each other of the gospel, then, 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 then we're just going to fade away. We're going to very quickly find ourselves living off past glories. And if you feel like your faith is maybe hanging by a thread, or maybe you feel numb, or maybe you can't remember the last time you prayed, or maybe you can't remember the last time you opened the Bible just for yourself, then you don't need to do more stuff. I'm not going to try to tell you to have more faith or to go to a Bible study. or do. I'm not going to tell you to do that stuff. I'm going to tell you to remember the gospel. I'm going to tell you, and we're going to see this at the, in a few minutes, that, that, that Jesus loves you so much, and that's what I want you to remember. Sorry, I just lost my place. Number four, uh, we need to keep it. So we need to wake up, strengthen one another, remember the gospel, and keep it. This word literally means hold fast. We're to treasure the gospel, to hold on to it like it's the most the precious thing in the world. That's what it means, hold fast. I'm gonna hold fast to the gospel. And number five, repent. Um, for the church in Sardis, this was repentant of their lack of sharing the gospel, their lack of missional living, they're, they're repentant of their spiritual lethargy, repentant of their arrogance or, or living off past glories. And, and to repent, by the way, isn't just to, to realize you, that you're doing wrong, it's to actually turn away from that and, and, and to choose a different path. And it's easy for us to assume that, that, that as we grow in spiritual maturity, right, so as you grow in maturity with Jesus, that you're going to have to repent less and less. So, so because, well, we're, we're made, being more made in the image of Jesus. We're being made more like him. So obviously, we just have to repent less. But that's not how it works. It's really not how it works. The more we grow in maturity, the more we have to repent. 
Because the more we see, the, the, we have more to repent of. And repentance is a, is a good thing. We think it's a bad thing, but repentance is a really, really good thing. And in his kindness to us, Jesus calls us to repent. And he gives him this warning then. He says, if you don't change your ways, I'm going to come like a thief. You won't know when I'm going to appear and I'm going to come against you. And this is scary and it should be scary because we never really consider that Jesus is going to come against us, right? But here's Jesus saying, I am so jealous for my church. I am so precious about my church that I am going to deal harshly with you if you mess it up. And we need to take it seriously. But let me quickly put all this together. What does all this add up to? Uh, Sam Storms, who uh, has written a really great book on this series, a wee kind of devotional, he says that this is a warning against abandoning the centrality of the supremacy of Christ. Okay, let me explain. This is a warning against abandoning, keeping Jesus at the center of everything. So we need to ask ourselves, are we Christ-centered in all that we do? Really, we love to talk about that, right? Christ-centered. But but really, are the songs that we sing Christ-centered? The way that we share communion, is, is that Christ-centered? The way that we publicly confess the gospel, is that Christ-centered? What about how we, we teach our kids and bring up our kids, is that Christ-centered? If a visitor came here on a Sunday morning or came when our, one of our missional community, when your missional community is meeting together for dinner, would they see that Jesus is the center of everything that we do? How about, we, how about how we spend our money as a church or individuals? Is that Christ-centered? In all these things, Jesus is calling us to keep him at the center of what we do and what we say and what we think. And Jesus says, this is the way that, that we're going to remain alive and healthy. This is how the church is going to grow. Finally then, and very quickly, Jesus gives them this awe-inspiring conclusion. Um, verses 5 and 6, he says, To the one who conquers, uh, the, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus, uh, like he's done with the other ones, the other churches, gives them this promise, this, this if, if you can overcome this conquer, this Nike, if we can overcome by listening to the words of Jesus and putting them into practice, here's the promise. And he promises them three things. Firstly, he will clothe us in white garments. Now, this doesn't mean that in the new creation we're all going to be sitting on clouds wearing long white robes, playing harps. Maybe we will. I don't know. I don't think so. But this is, again, this is, this is imagery that, 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 that Revelation uses, that the Bible uses, that I'm not really sure what we'll physically wear in heaven. Um, maybe it will be long wearing robes. Who knows? That would be nice, you know, and breezy, wouldn't it? That'd be good. That, I'm sure that'd be comfortable for eternity. You need something comfortable. But, but this imagery used, it just means that we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Like we saw in, in Isaiah in our call to worship, that, that we have been draped in his righteousness. Revelation uses this imagery all the time. Revelation 7 says, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. From every tribe, nation, from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, that's Jesus, clothed in white robes, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits into the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might 
be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders addressed me, that is John talking, and said, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Here's what's going on here. Jesus on the cross, when he died, he took our dirty, filthy robes full of stains and sin and rebellion, and he took that off and put it on himself. And he took his robe of pure righteousness, of holiness and perfection, and he draped it around our shoulders. It's, it's, what, it's what's called the imputation of righteousness. And, and, and don't switch off when you hear a phrase like that because it's, this is the most important part, I think, of the gospel, the imputation of righteousness, that Jesus put his righteousness on us so that when God looks at me, he doesn't see me, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. Isn't that incredible? All of our sinful nature is gone. All of our guilt and shame is gone. All of our unworthiness is gone. And what we have now because of the blood of Jesus is this right standing before God. And Jesus says, if we're faithful and we overcome, this is how we'll be for all eternity. For all of eternity, we can be in the presence of God, our creator and our father, because we wear the, right, the white robes of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? We wear the righteousness of Jesus. He doesn't see my sin. He sees the, 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 the no sin of Jesus. It's okay to respond to that if you feel like it. <laughs> Secondly, this is the second promise. He says he will not blot our names from the book of life. This is our security. It's the security of the saints, right? That, that when you're in Jesus, right, there's nothing that can take you away from him. Absolutely nothing. This is good news. The book of life is, 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 um, is this register of people that God has chosen for salvation from before the world began. Um, the Bible says in Ephesians 1, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be blameless before him. And if you're a Christian, your name is written in the book of life, and that's because God loves you and God chose you before the foundation of the world. And, and, and this, this kind of shows the permanence of our salvation. Jesus declares his promise to his chosen people that nothing by any means ever will ever take away from us the internal inheritance that he's made for us, right? If you're really in Jesus, then nothing, nothing will ever take, uh, take you away from being with him and in him forever. Jesus says, I will never remove your name from the book of life. So not only that, not only are we clothed in his righteousness, not only are we secure forever in him. Thirdly and finally, I love this. Jesus says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Jesus will confess our name before the father. You wear the righteousness of Jesus. Your name is in the book of life. And Jesus confesses you before the Father. This is, Jesus has used this language before in Matthew chapter 10. He says that everyone that acknowledges me, I will acknowledge before my Father is in heaven. And this is Jesus' way of saying, I, I, I'll joy, this is not Jesus you know, checking names off a list. This is him joyfully declaring to not just God, but to all the angels. Notice he says that, that, that before my Father and before his angels, God, Jesus declaring to all of heaven, see him, he's mine. She's mine. Jesus isn't embarrassed to confess that he belongs to us. 
which should challenge you as well, because how often are you embarrassed to belong to him? But Jesus stands in heaven, he says, he is mine, she is mine. And it's not like Jesus on uh, some, you know, on one of your worst days, whenever you've messed up a lot, that Jesus goes, I'm a wee bit embarrassed, yeah, he's one of mine. No, he sees you, he knows your works, he knows they're incomplete, but it's his joy to call you his own. And this is personal. He doesn't use, a, he doesn't use the, the, the plural of the word name. It's a singular. I confess his name before my father and before his angels. He doesn't say, oh, that church belongs to me or that church or the Christians in that city or that country. He says, no. He says, your name. So when we feel tired by the weight of life, when we're tempted to give up living missionally, when it feels like God is really far away, when you feel like you've just kind of fallen asleep, remember this. You are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. When God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. Your name is in the book of life and it's never going to be taken away. And more than that, Jesus stands in heaven before God and before all the angels. He says, you see Andrew there? He's mine. He wears my robes. He's worthy. Amazing. So let's never lose that hope, church, and, and let's be awake to what's important. Let's hold fast to the gospel, remember it, treasure it. Let's be people who learn to repent often. Let's be a church who knows how to repent because we are his and he is ours and he stands in heaven and confesses to all of heaven that we belong to him. Let me, let me pray for us.